Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Uh, we are in a series uh, in the book of Psalms, making our way through. Of course, we're not going through all 150 of them, but we're, I'm marching through certain ones over uh, about six weeks or so. And uh, today we're going to be over in Psalm 68. Uh, if you have your Bibles or your app, or it'll be up on the screen as well. And uh, there are two verses right in the middle of this very powerful psalm about how great God is and how powerful He is about family. Just suddenly it just... It's just there, and uh, I found it quite illuminating and, and almost like, wow, why is that there? You know, why is in this whole declaration of God being victorious over his enemies, why would he put these two verses uh, right here, you know, in, in this spot? And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at that, and as we've been doing through this series, I want us to read this together so... Uh, so you guys can get used to reading the Psalms because they're such a beautiful book and, and so wonderful. So uh, let's read this together. You guys ready? Here we go. A father. Father, we ask your blessing today on your word. We ask that you'd breathe life on it. Uh, Lord, this is a very wonderful but sensitive topic. And so I ask for your help this morning. God, I know that you love people and you love family. And so we ask that you breathe life on your word and that this, these two verses indeed would give us some clarity on what you see as family. And Lord, I ask for you to help me in my weakness. Give me the gift of teaching. Uh, let us hear what you want to say. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you come and move. You're the presence of God. You're, we just welcome you here, Holy Spirit. We open our hearts to you. And uh, we just look forward to see what you're going to do this morning, God. So come, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you lived uh, in the the uh, black and white nuclear family age. Uh, if you came through some of the pictures, you know that uh, it looked quite, it looked quaint, didn't it? It almost looked perfect. I mean, it, it has a, a feel to it that like, oh, everything is just right. But many of us who lived through that black and white nuclear family, as they call it, or as George would call it, nuclear uh, family, there, you know, we know that it wasn't always as perfect as the shows made it to be. And uh, right in the middle of this psalm, let me just set this psalm up. David, uh, who we believe wrote this, is just declaring the glory of God. He is declaring that God has been victorious over his enemies. He's all-powerful. Probably this psalm is probably written and being sung as the ark is coming into Jerusalem. And that is, they're celebrating uh, the presence of God coming back to the people of God. So it's a very joyous time, a very wonderful time for David. 
And he's just talking again and again about how powerful, how wonderful God is. And then there in verse 5 and verse 6, we read our text today. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. And then he goes back to declaring the awesomeness of God. God. A father to the fatherless. This same God that is victorious over all of his enemies. Growing up, I grew up, uh, I was very young when these paintings came out. But does anybody remember the Norman Rockwell paintings? Uh, Yeah. Oh, you do? You've seen them? Awesome. I mean, just that picture, right? You look at that and you go, gosh, I want to go to that family. You know, I just want to be there at Thanksgiving. And and I want to sit around that table with the granddad and the grandma and the mom and the dad and and my brothers and sisters, and I just want to be there for that. And it painted that beautiful picture. And then as we moved on into, like, the 60s and all, we had shows like Leave it to Beaver. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I love this, and I especially loved Wally's hair. I mean, <laughs> who wouldn't love that? I mean, I'm looking for somebody to, like, sport that the next time, like, next Sunday when we come in here. I mean, that's rocking it there, you know. And, and I mean, these were, like... There was always a moral to it. The family, you know, always kind of kept things together. And then we moved into a lot more humor, like Good Times, which was really one of my favorites, probably uh, because of the father, John Amos. Uh, because, I don't know, for, for some reason, he just was the epitome of a great dad to me. I mean, he was strong. He, he always brought in, like, this foundation to the family. He always had that beautiful smile. And, uh, you know... It was, it's a sad thing, but doing research for this sermon, I found out that he put out a country album a few years ago. And everything I thought of John Amos playing that part just went out the window. I, he just, just like ruined it for me. And I actually looked it up, and it was really bad. I mean, I actually watched it on YouTube. Woo, man. Then we moved on to the Crosby show, you know, the Huxtables. And, you know, he was always, there was always a theme, and the family was together. And, I mean... It just puts a smile on your face. And, and then to Family Matters and Stevie Urkel. I mean, who wouldn't, you know, all of this. And, it, it, you know, the humor was always there, but it was always a, I mean, it was, we are always looking for family. I mean, our culture is always desperate for family. It's a theme in everything. It seems like we can't escape. Now, family changes definition as culture moves on. Like, you know, it moved on from this to Seinfeld. So our family is like whoever lives close to you, you know, they barge into your house like it's your own, they eat your food. I mean, that's your family, you know, you joke, you cut up, you pick on each other, but you forgive one another, you're there for one another. And if you watch culture, but the same theme is there. I want a place where I belong and where people love me and I can be who I am. And I mean, then you move into friends and, you know, and we're just marching through the decades here. And we all look at that and go, now that, I love that. But who can afford to look like that, dress like that, live like that? I mean, really, it's such a ideal, but family definition kind of changes, doesn't it? And then what happens? We move to the Simpsons. You know, now like family has just gotten so weird You know, but we're still looking for it. We're still looking for it. Keep something together. Keep that cohesiveness. And, uh, you know, then now we're like at the Modern Family, and uh, which I think is a hilarious show. But uh, it's, but do you see this theme in our culture? We are all looking for family. 
even the series that you guys watch, if you have a special series on television or something, if you look below all of the dialogue, you will see a recurring theme for family. Now, we watched some, um, some series and we've watched some to the end, like on Netflix, you know, and it, it always ends up at some point where there is this hunger, this place where everybody, everything they do is looking to come home somehow, some way. So we look at all of this and maybe you're thinking, I'm in church, you know, this preacher is going to rant and rave over how good it was and how bad it is. No, you're not going to get that from me because I am old enough and been around enough to know that, like I said, the black and white nuclear family picture wasn't as pretty as it seemed many times. That there was an underbelly underneath all of that because people are people and people have problems. And in some of us who grew up in that beautiful black and white sitcom era, no, we came out damaged. We came out with things that still hurt us and still affect us. But it doesn't affect our hunger for family. We still want it. And again, I find it fascinating that in Psalm 68, in the middle of this declaration of God's power and His strength, He says, this God, if I can paraphrase, this God of power and strength that just romps over his enemies is also a father to the fatherless. He is a defender of the widows. And if you were a widow in this period of time, believe me, if you didn't have somebody to care for you, you were when your husband died, you were out on the streets. You owned nothing, you had nothing, and there was no one to care for you. And David comes along and says, this God of power cares about the woman who is left alone and by herself. This is the God who is victorious over all his enemies. He is a God in his holy dwelling. In his holy dwelling, he is still the father of the fatherless, the one who cares for the widow. God sets, he picks up, takes the lonely, those who are alone, and puts them in families. Places them in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. And I love that. It's like if you've been in bondage and alone and not being able to get into family, God will take you and he will sing over you. He's so happy to put you in a place where you can be cared for finally that he sings over you as he takes you out of that place of bondage and puts you in that place where you can be cared for. That is the God we celebrate today. That's the God that changed my life and is changing my life and has changed your life and is changing your life. The father of the fatherless. The one who loves the widow. The one who sets the lonely in family. Family is God's idea. You know, it it is interesting. If you've read this book, it is very difficult to find one healthy family in this book. Have you noticed that? David, the guy writing this psalm, whoo, I mean, did not have what you call a healthy family at all. I mean, his brothers wanted to kill him. His own son wanted to kill him. I mean, it was, I mean, it was dysfunctional to the hilt. And yet David, as God speaks through him in this psalm, says, but God's desire is that there be family, there be a place where you can go when you're lonely and you can come home. And if you feel fatherless, you can come there. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So you've got a fill-in in your handout today, and uh, if you want to track along with me. And uh, the first one is that God uses family, your first fill-in is, as a model. God uses family as a model. Every time I do a wedding, and I've done quite a few now, every time I uh, do one, I, 
I tell the bride and the groom and those that are uh, celebrating that what's happening is this is a, is a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. This isn't just about the bride and the groom. That the whole family that is, is starting at that moment with those vows is a picture of Christ and the church and how much he loves the church. And the scripture tells us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's a tall order, isn't it? I mean, well, come on, Jesus, can't you lower it down just a little bit? I mean, and gave himself for it. And so whenever we look at our marriages, we look at our relationships in the home, they're supposed to be a model, a picture of God's great love for us. And of course, it's also a model of how we aren't that, but how God is that. Because we can't, it just seems like we can't get it right. But yet God, because he is a father of the fatherless, he knows how to get it right. And so there's this driving hunger. I almost think sometimes because we can't quite get it right, that gives us more of a thirst to find this place that David is singing about in this psalm. We want to come home to it. And so it's, it's a model. It's a model of seeing and tasting what God's desire is in a family. When, when everything is just right in your home, or you're visiting your grandparents or with your parents or it's just right, that moment at Thanksgiving or that moment when everyone seems to have accepted everyone and everything is just running perfect and you get that taste of not being alone anymore and with family, that's just a, just a little piece of what God's family is supposed to be like. It's a taste of the kingdom of God and his family. We all have that thirst. So it's a model. It's a, to be a model. And secondly, God uses, it, uses family as a means. As a means. And that is that to a means of learning patience, right? I mean, there's one of the things. Where's the first place you faced your own selfishness? That was in your family, right? Growing up, wherever you were, whatever your situation was, it was growing up. It was a means to, to be able to look at your life and go, Boy, I am really selfish. You know, I, we were laughing in the first service. Uh, our kids used to love the biscuits that Karen made, you know, and we'd have even other kids over at our house all the time, and they would scarf the biscuits up and hide them, you know. And I'd, I'd look at that stack of biscuits. I'm like, dude, I ain't even got one. Where did the biscuits go? And you look, and they're stacked up under the table, you know. The kids are, that selfishness coming out. And it's like, look, you have to give one away. Put it back up on the table, hand it over. You know, your selfishness. It's, it, family is a means for us to face that. It's where we first face forgiveness, having to forgive. I mean, your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, somebody does something that really hurts, and, and you're having to face it. Some of us are still facing it, still facing having to forgive. It is a means by which God puts us in a position to realize our deficit and how we have to learn to let things go. Um, you know, we learn to sacrifice for the group. Some of you in here have had to, when your families have gotten down, you pulled together. You pulled your resources together. You did everything you could to make it. Kids, mom, dad, or if it was a single mom and the kids, you all did what you had to do in order to get through. So you learned how to live sacrificially. It was a means by which that happened. God uses the family. And thirdly, uh, God uses it as a motive. God uses it as a model, a means, and a motive. Isn't it funny that uh, no matter a lot of times how bad maybe our family experience was, it, there's still this sense of gravitational pull toward family. There's this motion 
toward it. When 9-11 hit, even, I bet most of us probably thought, are, are, is my family okay? Where are my loved ones? If, if this is really, if we're about to face a huge change and a challenge in this country, where are the people I love? Are they safe? That motive of love and care and concern. Uh, most of the TV series we, we see, like I said, are, are, are based on this strong momentum and motive of family, of wanting to finally come home. We were watching the end of a series that we've watched for like three or four um, years now, and, or it was supposed to be over three or four years. We got Netflix and got caught up like in two weeks. But... <laughs> You know, we really got into it. But the last one, you know, it's these two policemen. And the last one, you know, the policewoman, policeman, the, the, the last one, both of them had family situations. Really, but the last scene is one of the partners coming back to the other one and saying, I realized I only felt at home and safe with you. And that was the closing chapter in this series. And I mean, there's all this other stuff going on of solving crimes and all of this, but the whole theme through the whole thing was family, family, family. You see it over and over and over again in our culture because God has placed that hunger force in us. So there's motive, you know, and then it's also where we first, and this is your next set of fill-ins, where we first develop our sense of identity. Now this is a blessing and a curse, isn't it? I mean, this is where we get stamped in our families of origin, where we first begin to believe who we really are. From a small child, the things you heard, the things you saw, how you were treated, all of that begins to imprint an identity into your life. Um, when you were young, you know, I was asked, well, who are you, you know, or who do you belong to? And I would go, I'm the oldest son of Tim and Margie Holt. And that was part of my identity. Of course, at home I was being stamped with an identity by the way I was being treated, taught to, and also, in all fairness to all parents, the way I interpreted it. Right? The way I interpreted what was being said and heard. And so all of that was stamping into me a certain identity. I mean, that's where we get it. That's, and it's complex. You know, there's, I mean, I, I'm the first to tell you it's complex very complex but it doesn't mean that God doesn't have you know a resource of healing in a place to come home to like he says in Psalm 68 uh, it's so complicated I, all these years of pastoring and all I have seen kind of like the friends thing you know I've seen people who appear to have every single thing going for them you know good looks talented just everything that most of us would be going, man, you know, God, you gave more to them. You should have gave a little to me, you know. And, and you look at them, and they think they are horrible. They think they're ugly. They're not talented. Why? Because they were stamped early on by certain words in the home. And, all, and people tell them all the time what a wonderful person they are, and they don't believe it. They can't see it because of that identity that was stamped early on. So... That's what family does. It gives us our first sense. Now, in all honesty, we can get an inflated sense of self, too, from that. Can we not? Oh, you're like the most awesome daughter or son in the world. Do you realize, Timmy, you can do anything in the world you want to? No, you can't. I mean, that's a pure setup for failure, right? I mean, you can't do anything you want. No, you can't. 
That's a lie. Mom, why did you tell me that? You know, I thought I could. I mean, that's not true. And it's, it's, it's kind of like uh, I heard a guitar player say years ago that if your mama's the only one telling you that you're a good guitar player, you need to get another opinion. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, you know, God bless our parents who really, you know, poured it on to us to tell us how awesome we were. But really, <laughs> it wasn't true. I mean, you know, a little balance would have been like, you know, life's going to be tough. You're going to have to work hard. But here, here's the tools to help you, you know, and, and let's come alongside you and let's do it and and here's what the value in all. And, um, you know, that's uh, it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing. There's the family you belong to. There's the family you build. And there's the family you become. All three are, are working at the same time. The family you belong to, the family you build, and the family you become. But our identity is tied up so much in that. You know, the scripture tells us, though, and here's the beauty of this even in Psalm 68, that when Jesus came, we can find our identity in him. He frees us to be what we were always intended to be when we find ourselves in him. That is our liberation. That is how we come out, and that's how God leads us out with singing is through Christ because he has liberated us and freed us to become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The righteousness, the perfection, the rightness of God in Christ Jesus. If we don't find our identity in some place that reconciles us to God, we will always be chasing this. Always. Our identity is always skewed through life. And Jesus is is the answer to this. Our identity. I want to give you a, a little practice that's been a blessing to me. Over in Ephesians in the New Testament. Um, you can do this in Psalms as well, but I like the first chapter of Ephesians. You can personalize these things. You can train your brain to think differently, no matter what you heard when you were growing up. If you heard bad things about you and, and there were bad things said over you, God has some good things to say over you good things to say about you, and you can begin to change the way you process information. I like to take Ephesians 1, like verse 3, and you can read right on down to 14 or whatever. I just want to read a little bit of this. Uh, This is said in the plural, and it's said like us and we, but if you want to make it personal, you just change it to me, to I, and you can say something like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed, it says us, who has blessed me. In the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose me in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined, it says us, but we can say me, for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure. Not, well, I think I'll take him. I know, you know, you suck, but it's all right. Come on, I'll take it. No, it's not like that. It's not like that. It's, it's his pleasure to take you. Just like the singing in Psalm 68, 5 and 6, when he sings over you to bring you in. It's his good pleasure to bring you into his family. His good pleasure. For adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. You are not like some random thought out, well, I guess I'll do this for him. No, this was a part of his will for you, to adopt you, to bring you into his family, to the praise of his glorious grace 
which he has freely given us, or you can say me, in the one he loves. In him we, or I, have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, on me, with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to me the mystery of his will, according to, here it is again, his good pleasure. You get this? It's his good pleasure to make you his son and daughter. To bring you into his family. He is happy to do it. He is not ashamed of you. He loves you and has pulled you into his family. I, I, that's, where, that's where our identity is found. It's in Christ. As we keep looking for it in all kinds of ways and our identity has been damaged in so many ways. Jesus is saying, come home. This is where your identity is. It's my good pleasure to give you my name, to bring you the lonely one and set you in family. Secondly, family is where we you know, also uh, form our security, our sense of security, or should I say insecurity, you know, depending on your experience, depending on how you process through what you went through. Everyone wants to feel safe, and family should be the safest place on the earth. Should be. But it's not, is it? I mean, some of us have horrendous stories where family was never safe. You came home at times to, you didn't know what you were coming home to. When dad came home, you didn't know what was coming home. Was dad coming home or was a tyrant coming home? Do I laugh or do I be quiet? Should I stay quiet? What do I do? Family was never safe. But family should be safe. It should be secure. It should be a place where you're not teeter-tottering over acceptance or rejection. It should be the place you can come home to. But it isn't always like that. Whenever something happens, we want to get home. Because we feel like that's where I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be secure. If things are disturbed in our world, we want to get to the people we love so we can feel secure. And that is the way it should be. But eventually we find out that's not always the case. But here's the good news again. In Christ, in Christ you can come home and rest. You can Come home and be secure in him. There's no more being insecure, thinking. Some of you guys in here this morning, you're wondering about God. You just don't believe God will take you. You think he'll take you, reject you. Take you, reject you. You'll misbehave and he's kicked you out. Maybe you've been out there a while and you haven't been following him the way that you know you should and you think God's rejected me. He's walked off from me. He hasn't walked off from you. You walked off from him, but he's right behind you. Remember last week I had that guy following me? Like, look, look behind you. You feel that presence? That's God. That's God behind you. Going, I lead the captives out with singing. And I'm here now. So this is, you know, family is where we first get our sense of security or, or the, at least the thirst and the hunger for security. We know there needs to be a place where we can feel safe. And thirdly, it's a family is a place where we first experience acceptance, or it should be. And I know this is tied to security too, but I wanted to pull this out because this is such a big word to be accepted for who we are. Just who we are, not what we do. 
but just because we belong to someone. Just because we belong. And finally go, I'm accepted. And um, our acceptance many times is based on our behavior, isn't it? And I hope all of us that are involved in family understand this, that our holding back our acceptance from those that we love and our family is a brutal thing. To use it as a force to pry behavior out of someone, like I will reject you until you behave correctly, is not that model of Christ. I'm not saying there's not repercussions, there's not discipline in family. Understand what I'm saying, but acceptance of saying you are mine should never be on the table. You get this? You are mine. That acceptance. A person realizing that they are accepted. I mean, I love the church. I I think it is the family of God. It's where people can come home. I really believe church hopping is a part of people trying to find family. You know, they come into a dysfunctional family like the church. (laughs) Well, we're working at it. You know, they come into this family and they like things don't, something Something strikes them as like their family, and they go, oh, that's just like my family I grew up in. I'm out of here. I'm going to another one. And so we keep looking for a family that will take us instead of accepting us, and we won't hang around long enough to do the work, you know, to get in there and realize this is a group that will accept me and will love me. And uh, so, you know, the kingdom is a place of acceptance. We're going to have child dedications next Sunday. I mean, boy, isn't that awesome? I mean, that is saying to the children, to the families, we accept you. We love children here. We're going to have a baptistry over here, not, you know, in sometime. <laughs> anyway, we're getting ready to have it built, you know, in the next few months, right over here. Every time there's a baptism, that is a sign of acceptance that Jesus Christ and the church has received a new brother, a new sister into the kingdom and into this family, this church family. We celebrate acceptance around here. This should be a really wonderful place of acceptance. The kingdom is a place of acceptance. And, uh, and I can't wait to get that baptistry in and have baptisms going on during the worship service. You know, whoo, man, that's going to be good. Until then, next Sunday at the beach, we'll do it. I love doing it in the ocean, obviously. But when it gets cold, not all of you have wetsuits. So we want to be able to do it in the wintertime as well. Okay, healthy families, let's finish this up. Healthy families have, uh, I just listed three things here today. Uh, for your feeling. Healthy families all have to have uh, healthy boundaries. And one of the areas that we need is certain speech needs to, we need to watch how we talk in our, in our homes. We need to watch how we talk in this home about one another, the words we use. Families should never use language that devalue its members, that belittle the family members to the point of feeling like they're less than. Do you get this? Some of you grew up, you know exactly what I'm talking about because that identity was, was just imprinted on you because of certain words that were spoken over you. Some of you are still dealing with it. You hear the voices and God, I want this Psalm 68, 5 and 6, Zephaniah three seventeen, where it says that God, same thing, he sings over you. Ephesians 1, that chapter, so that you can hear that in God's family, when God redeemed you, it's not like that here. God is speaking good things over you. He loves you and paid the price for you. And so you need to, you need to start saying to yourself what He says about you. 
But in our homes, with our friendships that we consider our extended families or our families, we need to watch how we talk to each other, right? We need to say, the, the Bible tells us to only say words that are for the building up, edifying, edification. That means to build up a person at that time. Doesn't mean you don't tell the truth, any of that. You tell the truth, but you tell it with great mercy and great compassion. We have to use certain speech. We have to be careful about our tongues. Even Jesus said that anyone who says to another person, you fool, is in danger of hell. <laughs> That's from Jesus, you know. And how many times have we said that driving around Myrtle Beach? <laughs> it's like, I repent, God. I'm sorry. I don't want to go to hell. All right. You know. All right. So the good thing is there's repentance, right? There's repentance and there's God's forgiveness. He is there for us. He's training us. None of us are quite there yet, but he's working on us. And this family here in the vineyard is working together on it. And secondly, a boundary a strong boundary is physical violence. There should, there should not be. Some of you grew up, you know, you grew up with horrendous things being done to you or your siblings or someone. And it did something to you. It damaged. And it should not have occurred. I want to tell you that. It should not have occurred. God is not an abuser. He may discipline us. I heard a guy say years ago, you know, that... God, God may hurt you, but he will never damage you. In other words, he may discipline you, but he will never damage you. Unlike some of the fathers and some of the parents or foster homes or whatever we've been through have done. If you have an out, if your anger is uncontrollable, you need to get some help. You need to come to somebody in this church, come to Pastor Rick, to Bruce, to one of us and say, man, you know what, there's something going on with me. I can't control my anger. Help me. Help me. And uh, no one should have to grow up. There needs to be a strong boundary for that. Lastly, I think every family needs clear direction. They need a boundary of knowing why they exist. Clear direction. Because uh, what do we think? That, that, that our family just happened? I mean, it's like, well, I was born, you know. And, then, uh, and we just exist, and so we just have family, and we don't, don't know why. Those of you who are leaders in the family... What is the direction of your family? Why do you exist? I, I, don't, I think it's good to even have like a vision statement for your family. Why do you exist? Why did God let you exist with your family and friends or your extended family, the people that you love and you do life with? What is your direction as a family? What is the purpose of your family? Clear direction. Um, you know, and by that, I don't mean that, you know, we're so closed as a family that we draw boundaries and like you're out and, and you know we're just in like the whole family is just the whole family because a new testament family is a family that's open to the orphan it's open to the widow it's open to the lonely it's open to everyone when you sit in the family of god it's the family of god so we are open to everyone but that's part of our direction am i looking at our lives and going What's the direction of our marriage and our family from here on? Is it to include the lonely so that they can find a place in our friendship? What is the purpose of your family? Joshua had fought his whole life, you know, to get the children of Israel into that place, the promised land. He's an old man, and he's looking back over all the victories and all the struggles that he's had. And in Joshua 24, 15, he says this to the, to the people. He goes, 
But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, some of you know this, we will serve the Lord. There it is. There's the direction. We will serve the Lord. Have you gathered up your family and said, here's our direction, family. We're going to serve the Lord. Come hell or high water, we're going to serve the Lord. Loss or gain, we're going to serve the Lord. This is our purpose. This is our reason for existence, to serve the Lord. Don't let the past dictate what the purpose of your present family is. Don't let it rob you of the beautiful purposes of God. Know that God has a grand plan for you to put you in a place of love and acceptance and also for you to be the instrument of that to others as well. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com. 